This is John. This is Trav. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of getting in a skinny little boat and heading off for the new world. This week, we are exploring one of the fringeworthy races, the Norlanders. And we're going to tell you all about the Norlanders and their great struggle for survival until they met up with the grand explorers from Earth Prime. But before that, we have some listener feedback. John, who's this feedback from? Aramdi? Arandi. Arandi. And it turns out it's one of Bruce's uh, players. Yes. Uh, Ken has been playing Fringeworthy and a lot of other games for, with me for about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Yeah, and it's feedback on episode 193, where we talk about science fiction topics. Right. We were talking about how to create science fiction adventures for Fringeworthy. Trav, you want to read the message? There's actually two comments, so when we do them one at a time, that way we, we, can, we can answer each one, I guess. Okay. okay, let me get to... i got to scroll back here. I'd have to disagree about leaving the Earth because it's full of radiation after war. While it's true that places like Mars are full of radiation, that's radiation coming out of the sky. That's not the same thing as the ground in the ecosystem being contaminated with radioactive substances. And if you can do large-scale engineering, radiation from the sky can be handled with a big shield or by creating an atmosphere that will serve as a shield. Having the ground be full of fallout is much, much harder to handle. Yeah, and I think that was when we were talking about reasons why people would leave Earth. Am I correct? Or Yeah, Peter, he was putting forth the idea that it's so hard to terraform that you'd be better off terraforming the Earth to fix whatever problem it is that you're thinking about leaving Earth for. So therefore, you know, he was again it. Ken here is saying, well, you know, the whole idea of leaving Earth, a radioactive Earth, for a world in which there's a lot of radioactivity because it has a thin atmosphere still is plausible for these reasons. And he's saying that their radiation is coming from one direction only, and therefore you can put a shield between you and it versus radiation that would be everywhere if you were living on the Earth and trying to grow crops and and everything else. Yeah, I mean, there's certain circumstances where you can get radioactive particles suspended in the atmosphere for years. So it'd be hard to really clean a planet. You can clean the ground, but you got to put that dirt someplace. You know, and uh, depend if it's ground bursts, ground bursts are worse than air bursts because ground bursts will throw up a lot of fallout. Right, but no one does ground bursts because they're more effective if they do air burst. That's correct. The only time you do a ground burst is if you have something like Cheyenne Mountain, where you're trying to get something that's bunkered a mile under the ground. Or missile bases where, yeah, you're better off hitting the, hitting the dirt. 
where you're looking to hit something that's there, right? Just if you're just looking for widespread destruction, you're going to do an airburst. If you're looking like, well, I guess a tactical, you know, mm -hmm. type attack, like you have an intended singular target, then a ground burst would work. Basically, if you have hardened, you know, when we're talking uh, hardened defenses, ground burst is about the only way to crack them. At that point. But otherwise, if you're going after a city, yeah, air burst and the gamma radiation and neutrons will just take care of everybody in the city. <sighs> to respond to his point, I've always heard that radiation pretty much damps down fairly quickly after a nuclear war because most of the really bad radio t uh, tides are short-lived. They, they basically have a very short half-life. And so you're not going to end up with a lot of radioactive material within, let's say, 10 to 15 years of the nuclear war. Now, if you're trying to terraform a planet, 10, 15 years is nothing. I mean, you barely set down basic machinery that you're going to start using to terraform the planet. So I can see his point in that regard. I do think the idea that if you had a problem like a plague, you'd be trying to escape the very thing, that the plague itself, you know, the environment in which the plague would live, going to another world where the plague doesn't exist at all. I can see that too. So I guess it kind of depends on what it is that you're dealing with. He's objecting to the idea that leaving Earth just because it's radioactive is necessarily a bad idea. What do the rest of you think? Depends. If you're talking doomsday scenario where you, you, like, you line all your bombs with cobalt so that they make nice, you know, at least 90 years with the radiation, uh, yeah, okay, maybe you have a reason to leave Earth. But if it's just good old-fashioned nuclear warheads, mano a mano, I've been to Trinity, and it was just mildly ra ra radioactive. Not too bad to, to clean up and deal with, you know, 10, 20 years afterwards. And, and remember, it's not going to be global. It's, it's going to be concentrated in population and military areas. Yeah, even Nagasaki, I mean, they were moving in and, and working and rebuilding there at the most years of, um, of, the, of the explosion there. A friend of mine, her, her father, was in Hiroshima when it got hit. And he's still up and living. So, yeah, it's not always 100% effective killing off people. Well, you can shorten people's lifespans, but still, they're still living is he's, the point. He's in his 80s. Yeah, he, he's exceptional. Yeah, he's, ex he's the exception, yeah. There's a lot of people who died of cancer over in Japan. Well, yeah, yeah. When I took the NBC NCO course, the, you know, from the first detonation, you get a bunch of exotic nuclear materials, strontium, cesium, radical isotopes. They're gone in 72 hours. The other hard gamma-producing radiation hits a half-life at, at 14 days. But at 30 days, when it's safe for adults to get out and walking around, it's still too much radiation for children because their center of gravity is lower to the ground. So what is not a bad dose of radiation for you, if you're five years old and your center of mass is closer to the ground, it's still a bad, bad level of radiation. But even then, look at Chernobyl. I mean, it, it was heavily polluted. And it's green and growing. There's animals living there. And it's basically, you see, humans shouldn't go there. Oh, there's that mold that's growing in the reactor. Yeah. I mean, it's There's a radiation-loving mold that instead of photosynthesis, it's radiosynthesis. Different. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they should send the Fukushima. It's only bad if you like sushi, and I don't like sushi. You're 
going to get a bunch of gamma radiation in the beginning. And some bombs, I mean, there's still a whole ton of gravity drop bombs that you're going to get a, you're not going to get an air burst from anyway, because the aircraft isn't flying that high. So you're going to get something that's pretty close to a ground burst. Air bursts are, prefer- are preferred because of the wider damage area. So instead of instead of a, of a 500 meter across crater, you get a mile across crater, and it's kind of like stomping on something. You also get that nice EMP effect. You're going to get an EMP back from either one. Yeah, actually, you get EMP better if you if you if you get closer to the ionosphere. Yeah, the higher up you detonate it, the better your EMP effect. If you set one off in the troposphere, you you destroy radio communications for everybody. Oh yeah, when they were doing the the high altitude atomic bomb test, the first one they did in the in, in the in the sweet spot and took out Honolulu from the EMP effect, and they were thousands of miles from Honolulu. So you basically think that uh, Peter was full of beans on that one, and you agree with Ken? Uh, it has to be some sort of bio plague that's really hard to, to clear out. I'm going to side with Peter though, because all those atomic tests that were done in Nevada. Hundreds of above-ground tests. Downwind of Nevada is Utah. And Mormon children in Utah were having thyroid disorders. And they were getting it through cow's milk. Because the cows would eat the grass. And the radioactive material would be filtered through their systems through the cow's mammaries. And it came out in the milk. Anyways, I think that covered the first comment. So let's go on to the second one then. All right. So I'll read this one. As for sci-fi adventures in the, la- in the late campaign, I'll point out that no matter how much tech IDEC explorers have, there's a good chance that they'll have their tech taken away, at which point no tech matters except the tech on the local world. And the adventure is almost indistinguishable from an early, early campaign adventure. Unlike Star Trek, every group of adventures is a landing party, and there really isn't any equivalent of having a starship in orbit ready to beam them back up, resupply them if their toys are taken away, send backups, etc. So the high-tech nature of the, of the late campaign isn't going to affect the adventure much. He's totally getting it wrong. Yeah, what we said was is the high-tech of the late campaign meant the tech that was brought back from science fiction worlds wouldn't destroy Earth Prime and its culture and its economy and such. This The adventure was talking about running like science fiction type adventures on the, the which would be on the local world that's being exploring. So, you know, he, he's, he's, he's absolutely right in his statement, but it has nothing to do with what we were talking about that night. There's going to be some tech that's hard to take away. Like if you have a Tremelon bio suit, they may not be able to take that off of you. You know, well, you willingly, willingly removing it. Even if you have like genetic alterations, let's say it's a late campaign and you've had genetic alterations to make, I don't know, your skin tougher or your vision better. You're custom made fringe worthy. Right. But he's talking about your jet packs. He's talking about your hoverboards. He's talking about your laser pistols, you know, your smart grenades, your robots, you know, your drones, all those things. Yeah, the, the, that, those high tech things. Yeah, the, the natives will take those away from them because they're obviously an abomination before their god. Well, that can happen in, in, the, in the early campaign, too. But I'll make one point, though. In the early campaign, it's probably not as much of a problem as in, say, a late campaign. You know, because in the late campaign, 40 or 50 years in the future, taking away the toys from people who grew up with all this high tech may be actually worse 
than taking away from people who, who just found it. Well, yeah, because you're used to not having it and used to dealing with whatever it is. If you're raised with laser pistols and all of a sudden you're relegated to fighting with, you know, a stick, you're not going to do all that well. Now, the person who's used to fighting with a stick and it's like, okay, we're taking your laser pistol. Oh, gee, look, a stick on the ground. You- well, you may know how to write, write really some, some uh, kick butt computer programming code. You don't know how to deal with the technology they have before you, if it's, especially if it's like 1940s tech. Just as up to says, you know, if someone from 1940 came into the future and saw the tech, it would be just the same, same problem. I think your, your man here, Bruce, might want to also listen to our high-tech versus low-tech campaign and go on that and see that variation. It probably will not be a problem for anyone working for, well, it's called the Commonwealth, because at this, this point in time, there's probably no idea anymore, just now Commonwealth explorers. They're going to be trained, and they're going to be trained, oh, and by the way, this training is about what to do when you don't have all your toys. So they'll have that training. It'll be a problem for the fringe tourist who doesn't have this training. Because that's what you'll see in the, in, the, in the far future campaign. You'll have the fringe tourists who are going out and visiting places who don't have the training. Or fringe merchant. Fringe merchant. You know, fringe dipl- diplomat. You know, if we figure out how to make, make fringe worthy by the uh, gross. They definitely will. Okay, because by this point, even if they haven't figured out how to make everybody fringe worthy, They'll have learned about the attuning, and so there will be an ever greater number of fringeworthy as time moves on. Yeah, it'd be more fringeworthy, and if they figure out how to turn the filter off, eh, well, there you go. That's a pr- big problem universally. Once you turn the filter off, everybody, unless you keep it a secret, gets the filter turned off. And now you've got uh, the equivalent of people going up the side of Mount Fuji for the big festival. The only turn the filter off. Once they figure out how to tell the set the biofilters to filter out the Miller disease, you know, once you figure out how to do that, then yeah, open it back up. Miller's walk through, they're cured. There's a lot of people out there who are not Miller. If they could move a thousand guys onto the French pass, they would be just as problematic. Even in the early campaign, the con. The Romans. Any of those guys, any of those warlike races. And you know, and we may have some talk about that when we get to the Norlanders. Remember, the whole thing about making the fringe-worthy, putting that fringe-worthy filter on was to avoid people marching whole armies through. Right. They were asked to do it by the people that were being preyed upon by unsupervised people. Well, because even if you had electrical, magnetic, and nuclear filters on, you don't have the fringe-worthy filter on. You still have... 100,000 people, you know, even with assault rifles, you don't need the energy-based stuff. You have 100,000 people just with assault rifles, that's still a problem. You kick in yeah, You that should know, Trav, you're doing the coptics. <laughs> yeah. Um, you get that fringe-worthy filter and, oh, look, you have one person with an assault rifle trying to attack a world. To me, that's just passively suicidal tendencies where I come from, but that's just me. <laughs> that's self-correcting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a Darwin award waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> As we used to say about the Red Army, quantity has a quality all its own. Yeah, I kind of put Mao's uh, thing about uh, power comes from the barrel of a gun out the window. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks very much, Ken, for uh, leaving a comment. And we really do appreciate it because it gives us a chance to think about what we've already discussed and see if, if any of our points of view have changed over the intervening week. Uh, I think you made a good point in the first one. I think you do make a good point in the second one where it's not a, a, actually a sci-fi adventure, just a regular adventure. Please keep posting. Yes, everybody, please. You know, we, we love doing this. When you guys give us feedback, it helps us extrapolate even more on what we talk about originally. So by all means, keep doing this. We enjoy this. Caveat emptor listeners. If you ask too many questions, they'll make you do the show. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's true. That's true. Death does not release you, you know. anyway okay so moving on to the norlanders the norlanders are and again we're assuming that you know something about our fringeworthy game where uh all these alternate universes are laid out uh like a string of dolls and each node has a prime world which has eight portals on it and uh, the Norlanders are at negative five, which means looking at Earth Prime, they're the ones to the left. The positive dolls or the nodes are the ones to the right. So go five nodes over to the left, go to the Prime world, and that's the people we're talking about this week. They joined up in FD002, which means two years after the Fringe Portal was discovered in Antarctic. So it is a very early contact for IDET. And when they went there, and from the looks of it, it looks like they probably went straight to Italy. But these people are actually originated as a culture up in Norway and those northern climes. But the reason that they're called the Norlanders and why their culture is so northern is because there was a plague. Trav, what happened with that plague? The plague. On this Earth, Alden, a plague of never-before-seen virulence cleansed the tropics and lower latitudes of most humanity in the 7th century. Due to some superstition and some common sense, the virtually untouched high northern population stayed stable. Only after a century did they explore the southern areas of their world. The devastation there was staggering. John discussed this pre-show, and you said in the 7th century, the estimated population of Earth was... Between 210 and 250 million people. So if we're talking 90, 95%, 98%, that 4 million. And there still were some survivors. You'll find enclaves in the warmer climes. Norway, Finland, Sweden, maybe Denmark. I would say maybe Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Yeah, and I would also toss in like every, anyone who lives basically up in the cold, cold climes, so all the Lap, uh, the Yakuts, the Aleuts, the Inuits, they probably survived it too. I'm going to limit this to anybody above the Arctic Circle. Cuts out Latvia, Lithuania, some of those Yakuts and stuff. Well, the languages that they say here are a Latin Germanic pigeon. Latin itself, and something called Norland trade. Scandinavian Germanic are basically off the same root. From the Indo-European family tree, yes. There are some words you look at and going, that could be almost German. It says here that only after a century, which means it was the 8th century, the 700s, did they explore the southern areas of the world. Now, when they say that, I really don't think that they actually explored deeply south. I think they were just going a little bit south, 
to see what was what, and what they found was a tremendous amount of death, a tremendous amount of dead bodies. After 100 years, you're not going to find any bodies. After 100 years, they're all, basically the scavengers will have them all more or less taken care of. You could be right, John. I'll, I'll take that back. But you're definitely going to find their villages, their towns, their cities. Everything is going to be empty and in ruins. Civilizations devoid of human life, yes. Right. And one of the things we know about these people is they're extremely superstitious. Looking at that is going to be like God has cursed these people. We do not want to go here and bring the curse back with us. So I see them as spreading far to the east and west. They're going to go and explore and populate that latitude, the latitudes that they're in, before they ever think about really going south. Well, yeah, from what the description says here, Bruce, by the turn of the millennium, which means, okay, the 7th century, the plague hit. So by the turn of the millennium, it's 1,000 A.D. So 300 years, they would have spread side to side, east to west. By the turn of the millennium, by the time 1,000 A.D., these industrious people had begun to recolonize the more temperate regions and install their beliefs and cultures to the very few survivors they found. Around 600, they still were uh, pagans. What we would call today the Asatru religion which is sort of Germanic, Norse religion, your, your Odin, Thor, Freya, all that. So 300 years after going east and west, that's when they would decide, okay, we're starting to, you know, we've, we've populated all this area. Like Paul said, the Arctic Circle area, they start going a little south. And that's when they go, okay, we're kind of cool here. We can go. We're not going to, they may have realized, okay, it's safe. Even so, it still takes them a hundred years to reach Rome. Yeah. So not the adventurous exploring Vikings we're used to reading about. It's not so much adventurous. It's because they were superstitious and had common sense. They took things slow, easy, methodical. Maybe a little bit of fear was involved, but I, I see a mixture between not so much paralyzing fear, but just analytical caution, seeing what they, you know, they happened upon and going, okay, we're going to wait a bit. And John, you, you really can't call people who cross the Atlantic in longboats not adventurous. That's true. There was a uh, Scandinavian colony in Greenland in the 600s. So. Is that when they established Greenland? The one thing about the Vikings is that they didn't go far from their shores. I mean, of course, in the North Atlantic, if you go from Northern Europe to Iceland, Iceland to Greenland, Greenland to the Americas you still got a lot of land in your sight. So, I mean, it's not like these people were traversing the Atlantic from, like, Spain to America. The Canary Islands was settled by Vikings. Oh, really? It's off the coast of Africa. Everybody there is blonde-haired and blue-eyed. <laughs> okay. They get around long as it's right around the coast. And I was wrong. Greenland was settled, uh, was settled in 980, 986. And remember, the Vikings dragged their longboats across the Russian steppes to put them in the Volga River to go south to the Black Sea and get to Constantinople. I mean, they just physically got out, laid down logs, and dragged these things with ropes. And somebody run to the back and grabbed the last log and, run, and they'd run around the front. They couldn't have built them when they got to the Black Sea? New boats when they got there? They yeah. really liked their boats. <laughs> okay. There's that too, right. but, it's, but it's the Russian strips. There's no trees to build a boat out of. That's true, yeah. Iceland was settled sometime in 770, so, yeah, okay. 
but it's all part of the, of the when they got to North America, there was no graylings to fight them. And therefore, they just moved in and said, oh, look, this is a great place to live. Well, let's see. Settling North America, they pressed westward. In the east, they passed the Urals and the rich farmlands of the Ukraine. In 1116 AD, Olaf the Explorer and his band stood in the crumbling glory of Rome. And then looted every every church, every villa, everything they could find that had gold in it, probably. Oh, you know it, yeah. Sure they did. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, why would they be any different than any other explorer slash conqueror? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why would they be different for the player characters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we love our player characters. We yeah. don't say bad things about them, Paul. Yeah, but that would be the big one of the biggest concentrations right next to uh, Constantinople. Concentrations of what? Gold. Oh, okay. Those are major trade centers. Well, any of the major cities that would have had churches or other places like that, thats you're right, that's where the concentration of gold and precious gems would be. Yep, yeah, so they, they go in the various churches and strip them bare. So you have settlements in North America. They're probably down the entire East Coast. Once you start going and start making kids of North America, they'll stop when they get down to Georgia, though. It's not good in Georgia. Well, you start running into yellow fever down there. Yeah, but I bet they love all the clams in Boston, in Boston Harbor. They had a very strong clam and crayfish industry in Georgia until we basically used up all the water and the seawater came in and ruined it. Yeah. All the seacoast is very rich. The biggest problem that they had with settlements was they were afraid of being attacked by the Spaniards and the pirates, which, of course, don't exist in this world. There will be some Native Americans. No disease is 100% effective, so there will be some survivors. Compared to what happened to, to the Native Americans when the Europeans first arrived, it's, it's worse. I mean, you might only find a few survivors in, like, say, Peru and the High Andes. Uh, and places like that where where it might be cold enough to actually keep whatever this vector, this disease away or something like that. But you're not going to find a whole lot of survivors in, the, in where it's nice and warm. Just the Inuits in the north of Canada and Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe some people on some of the Caribbean islands because those are fairly isolated too. Easter Island. That's not the Caribbean, John. I say we got to figure out how this how this disease gets around. What's the vector that carries it, or is it a multi-vector viral agent that that travels a number of different ways? It has to be something that travels well, great distances, fairly easy, and not carried by man. So I personally think it's an avian flu. So maybe this world's pretty devoid of birds as well. I can hear the epidemiologists out there. Yelling, no, no, you wouldn't cross the Atlantic. Uh, but seabirds do. Seabirds cross the Atlantic. If it, if it somehow moved from a land-based bird to a seabird, it would then cross the Atlantic, cross the Pacific. You're not going to find a whole lot of people in Australia, North America, or South America who didn't catch it. You won't, and you'll find people in Southern Africa who've got it. And it depends on also how the disease progresses. It might have a long incubation period, a long period of contagion mm-hmm. before all of the effects, all of the symptoms snowball into something that shuts down your internal organs and boils your brain and whatever it does that finally kills you. Now, I saw this as another example of the Commonwealth War where they developed some kind of a weapon on this world and possibly even tested it on the indigenous population before they were going to use it on somebody else. 
and that's why the plague happened because they, you know, they could have you know delivered it into space and it could have come right raining down across the entire world, and only the people who lived in the far northern climes didn't get the wind blowing to them because wind has a tendency to go from the from the Arctic down, not the other way. That would work too, yeah. But it couldn't be the Black Plague. The Black Plague are typically, you know, distributed by um, uh, fleas and so forth. The Black Plague is usually carried by fleas. And that one definitely would follow the Silk Road. It basically would affect Europe. It would affect uh, Asia, maybe India. But it wouldn't go south of the, of the Sahara. So, yeah, you'd have, it has to be something they can cross the Sahara and then also cross the, the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean. Silk Road splits at Iran and goes down into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, but yeah. And then there were ships moving along the coast from Saudi Arabia to India at the time, too. But the bubonic plague actually didn't get to southern Africa. It's theorized that it started in Egypt or in that area in Turkey and moved north and west. Actually, it started in China. No, John, I, I disagree with that. We had a whole talk. We had a whole podcast on this. But if you read the Black Plague, actually, it started in China. John, yes. we disagree. Yes, we disagree. Okay, and it doesn't really matter because this is a different plague. Your point is still that it didn't get south that far south, and apparently everything got got taken up. Yeah, it has to be an avian, uh, airborne disease. Now, Bruce, you came up with an idea, which was. It, it, you know, besides the, the the field testing during the Commonwealth Wars, it may also have been a, a, a spaceborne illness. Yeah, just basically an alien plague that came in off of a meteorite storm. Yeah, Andromeda. Yeah, been used in a, in a number of, of science fiction movies, but that's the most famous for sure. That would actually guarantee it's worldwide. Some folks actually thought that the, the flu. Of 1918, I believe it was, hit everywhere, more or less at the same time. There was this thought that perhaps it was alien disease that came a knocking. Until we get better evidence, though, I'll take that with a grain of salt. They went up to Alaska and they were digging up some victims of the Spanish flu who'd been buried up there because they're under permafrost, trying to find uh, some strains of the Spanish flu so they could have a look at it and see what it was that made it so virulent and. So contagious, so they could come up with methods to fight SARS. Yeah, and also weaponize if they need to. Uh, anyway, so. <laughs> it's always handy to have it around. Yeah. That's... It's a Spanish flu between friends. If you want an example of how devastating this was, we mentioned the Native Americans. When Columbus landed in North America, there's between uh, 60 and 100 million Native Americans living in North America. Uh, once the first vectors of um, chickenpox got got across and get into the population, within a hundred years they had ninety percent fatality rate. So when the pilgrims came over and settled, the reason I chose Plymouth, there was already a village there already, but it's completely decimated by the by chickenpox. So they just moved right in. You know, if it hadn't been for the chickenpox, it would. Uh, We'd be Algonquins right now, and not and not the Europeans. <laughs> it's very devastating. I mean, when you lose ninety percent of your population, uh, that's incredibly devastating. And in this case, we're theorizing 
what, a handful in various locations? You know, maybe 10, 10, 20 people in little villages, and that's about it? Probably more. I mean, villages tended to be like 30 to 50 people. But yes, you would certainly have quite a bit of inbreeding over the next 300, 400 years. But still not so much that they would, you wouldn't be, you know, they would kill themselves off or anything. It's just you'd have a higher instance of, of birth defects and such. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.